Hey, it's Scott Lips, and welcome back, my friends, to another exciting episode of Spin Magazine's Lip Service. Excited for today's guest, he is a legend. He's not only the drummer in the band Garbage, he's the producer behind a few of the most important rock records of all time, and he's one of the most successful producers of all time. He's produced records that have changed culture, like Nirvana's Nevermind, The Smashing Pumpkin, Siamese Dream, and Gish, The Foo Fighters, Sonic Youth, Green Day, the list goes on. His work as a producer has helped to shape rock music as we know it. I somehow manifested meeting Butch Vig. I actually reached out to him after having Silver Sun pickups on the show. I ran into him on the street in Tribeca not long ago. We have a lot of mutual friends. I'm excited to get into today with our guest, Mr. Butch Vig. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Today's episode of the show is brought to you by the all-new DLZ creator from Mackie. The DLZ Creator is an adaptive digital mixer designed for podcasting and streaming, and it's what I'm using right now to make this podcast with Butch Vig. What makes it so special? DLZ's mix agent technology takes all the hard parts out of making your podcast. With three selectable user modes from easy to enhanced to professional, DLZ allows creators of any experience level to make content on their own terms. It is easy. It is amazing. If you are a podcast user, you need this thing right away in Podcast Creator. With features like Setup Assistant, Auto Mix, Mackie has taken 30 years of audio legacy and packed all their expertise into a podcasting mixer that is not only top of the line, but incredibly easy to use. I can attest to that. I'm using it right now. I love it. You can find out more about DLZ Creator at Mackie.com. Check it out. The DLZ Creator by Mackie. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Welcome into the show, the most important rock producer, in my mind, in the last 30 years, Mr. Butch Vig. Scott, how are you? Nice to be here. I'm good. Great to have you here. I'm so excited to get into it. We're going to talk about the new Garbage Record, the tour, your history, and everything in between. Butch, it's so funny. I feel like I kind of manifested this because it's. I had the guys from Silver Sun Pickups on, Brian and Nikki were on the show, and they were like, you got to get Butch on the show. He'd be great on this. You guys would really get along. I'm like, that'd be great. So, of course, I'm sure you don't check your DMs, but I feel like I sent you a DM, and then I'm walking down the street in New York. I just moved there, back there about two weeks ago. And uh, sure enough, or a month ago, whenever it was. We ran into each other on the sidewalk. (laughs) So I feel like I put it out there in the universe. You were with your wife and your daughter looking at schools, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a great trip. Amazing. Do you like going back to New York? I do. And obviously hadn't been there for a while, you know, pre-COVID. I think the last time I was there was probably 2018 or so. And uh, my wife loves New York, and my daughter wants to go to NYU, <laughs> so she <laughs> likes New York a lot, too. Whether that happens or not, we don't know, but uh, we went and visited a, a bunch of schools in, in New York City. It was great. Awesome. It's funny. I ran into like a block away from where I moved, so I mean, the, the likelihood of that happening is so strange because I live in Tribeca. But uh, a lot to get into. Like I said, you were just tell me you were doing some garbage rehearsals for the new record, the new tour coming up. I know drumming is a little bit in the sort of the last of things that you consider yourself. I'm a drummer, so it's something I want to get into with you, some of the drumming stuff. But more importantly, I want to take it back to the beginning, Butch, and where it all started back to Madison and Wyoming, where you all started. So talk to me about like how you grew up, your parents. I think your mom was a music teacher early on. Yeah, I grew up in a musical household. My mom played piano and trumpet and sang. She, she had an amazing voice. She sang at people's weddings and uh, any sort of get-together. And um, she really exposed me to a lot of music growing up. Um, like, she bought Beatles records, and, you know, she'd play them next to the Tijuana Brass and Frank Sinatra and uh, Nat King Cole. 
um, I was inundated with uh, being in a small town, Viroqua, in Wisconsin. I was inundated with uh, country music, polka music. I know how to play a mean polka, <laughs> man. I played in a polka band in college. I got 200 bucks cash every gig <laughs> I played. It was awesome. Amazing. It was so good. Did you ever produce a polka band, by the way? Uh, there were a couple polka bands that came through Smart back in the day. Uh, and the the band that I played with, Cliff Benz and the Poketeers, we recorded a couple songs at our studio just for fun. I don't think he ever he ever put them out, but uh, it was a good gig, man. Two hundred bucks cash, amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I I played piano for about five years, and it's like five or six, fifth or sixth grade. I got interested in drums, and I begged my mom and dad to buy me a drum kit, and they bought me a a cheapo drum kit and I just started practicing all the time and uh, really got into rock and roll and and the great thing is um, my parents always really supported me in, in whatever my dad was a small town doctor he was hoping I'd get a real job right. you know like a lawyer or a doctor or going to business or whatever um, but he came around eventually. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because you, you were talking about your mom being into the Beatles, the Stones, even stuff like Thelonious Monk, Polka, obviously. Yep. But it wasn't until you really saw The Who that you decided this is something I want to do. And I think that your piano teacher was fairly strict from what I heard. So it was like, all right, drums seem like definitely not. Someone's not going to be hitting me with a stick. Or yeah, whatever yeah. It be. Oh, you heard you probably read that in another interview. Yeah, my piano teacher was sort of like that old Russian school, like really strict. And if you made a mistake, you get your knuckle wrapped, you know? So I I was kind of terrified of her. I would be. I remember though, when I took my, I think it was sixth grade and I took the final recital of that, um, that year or whatever. And I, I knew I was going to stop playing piano, but my mom thought I was going to keep playing, and the piano teacher did. But when I gave that last recital, I remember just going, I am out of here, <laughs> thinking that to myself, and I was. That's funny. And so the music that shaped you growing up, we talked a little bit about the Beatles and the Stones, but also the Clash. I think you were president of the Roxy Music Fan Club, great band. So talk to me a little bit about all your influences growing up and what really get you know, obviously Keith Moon, such an incredible drummer. Some of the things that really got you into playing music early on, besides the polka. Well, yeah, I wanted to be Keith Moon and realized very quickly I am not Keith Moon. <laughs> yeah. But I could play like Ringo or, yeah. or Charlie in, in the Rolling Stones, and those are kind of the two of the bands I listened to a lot when I was you know, putting headphones on and jamming along to albums. Um, when I went to the University of Wisconsin, I'd been playing in bands, and uh, I met Duke uh, from in a band called Spooner, and he's the guitarist in Garbage. And that's also where I met Steve Markham, a guitarist in Garbage, who sure. we started Smart Studios. And... Um, I think growing up, I had sort of looked at all those records I listened to as like they were on a different level, like Jimmy Page and the Beatles, and they, and they were to a certain extent. They were rock gods, untouchable. They were on this pedestal, and then punk and new wave happened, and I was like, I can be like those guys. Yeah. And I really started listening to the sound of those records. That's around that time is when I got interested in recording, and the band we were in, Spooner started making EPs and singles, and we did a self-produced album that was on an indie label. And I really got uh, active in the studio, asking the engineers questions like, why are you miking the snare this way, or why are you miking the guitar this way? I, was, I just really was fascinated by it. And um, slowly it just evolved into that was my passion. I, I don't think I really realized it until I finished college. I got a degree in film at the university, and, 
And uh, there was a point where I thought, should I move to L.A. and try to get into the film industry? But I was really enjoying being in bands in the Madison scene. And, and then Steve, Mark, and I decided for some idiotic reason to open a recording studio. <laughs> what was the scene like back then in Madison? Was there a scene? Were there local bands around there that you you know would record eventually? What was it like? Madison's always had a good scene. The university is big. It's 50,000 students, so every year you get... 15,000 freshmen would come in, a lot of them are musicians, and a lot of them start bands, and uh, a, lot of, a lot of cool clubs and cafes in Madison, and uh, w there was a healthy, like, sort of new wave punk scene at the time, and uh, there, there really wasn't a studio back in eight, 1984 when we opened the studio that sort of catered to that indie DIY scene, and uh, we rented a space in a warehouse, and I think we charged like 20 bucks an hour to go in and, and record, and... Uh, and we would just go to these all-ages shows and watch bands and go, oh, that band's pretty cool, and just go up afterwards and say, hey, man, you want to come and record our studio? Um, just buy a reel of tape and come on by. It's 20 bucks an hour, and you can pay us later, whatever, you know. And 20 and, bucks an hour, incredible. And, uh, <laughs> and we got busy really fast right away. And so it's funny because you grew up in Madison, and you, you initially were thinking about moving to L.A. to be in the film business, but at some point you start recording all these bands. And what was the first band that really sort of clicked for you where you felt like this was really working for me? Because you recorded hundreds of bands early on, right? Hundreds, probably thousands of bands uh, back in the day from like 84 to 91. I just worked six or seven days a week. And uh, it, it was good, good experience to do that because... Um, we did everything. We recorded everything. And anybody who wanted to book the studio was great. We, you know, it was an opera singer, country western, a folk singer. Uh, and there were some hip-hop bands in Madison, blues guitarists would come in. Uh, the Wisconsin marching band came in Amazing. to record some songs. That was a, a tester. <laughs> Are there any bands that made it from Madison, by the way? Um, I feel like there's, I don't even, I can't recall. Any well, that... I mean, I guess, obviously, Garbage is Shirley's from Scotland, but that was our home base. There there were a couple bands that sort of were pretty big on the local scene, but never, I guess, really caught on with on the major label, you know, that sold a lot of records. Um, there were some from Wisconsin, though, the Violent Femmes. Yeah. Steve Miller lived in Wisconsin for a while. Ben Sidron was a, a great jazz pianist. Sure. He's from he's from Madison. Um, the band that really sort of uh, made a name for me was a band called Killdozer, and they were on an indie label called Touch and Go, and they're a god-awful sound. They're, they're re they, their songs sound like you're falling down the stairs in slow motion, and Mike Gerald, the singer, his voice is like two octaves lower than mine, like this. And um, they played these sort of weird, stumbling, polyrhythmic grooves, and, and Mike wrote really funny lyrics. And uh, so the production was pretty simple, but I always mixed his voice really loud and kind of confrontational which is not what punk bands did. Yeah, you, sure. You'd always bury the vocals, you know, t yeah. turn the guitars up super loud. Anyway, it was one of their records that I made, 12 Point Buck, that uh, Kurt Cobain heard and Billy Corgan heard from the Pumpkins, and that's why they came calling, because they liked the sound of those Killdozer records. Yeah, why do you think that band sort of resonated with both of them? Because it wasn't a band that had commercial success at that point. How did they find Killdozer? I feel like it wasn't, you know... Interesting. Well, I know Kurt was into all kinds of stuff, so obviously he was probably seeking out the indie bands that were really underground at that point. But had they all come to you early on? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, Touch and Go was a small label, and they maybe would press four or five thousand copies of the record. You know, that would go out to around the country to indie record stores, um, and they didn't even get that much airplay on like college radio because they were just, you know, Killdozer was just such a, a nasty sound. 
but somehow those guys heard them. And uh, I think they just liked the sound of the record, you know, they, even though uh, the, the records were kind of sludgy. I, I have this thing I always tell artists, I, well, I want recordings to be really focused. doesn't matter what the arrangement is like or the production. I want to hear all the parts. I want all the parts to work together, whether it's uh, the Foo Fighters or Green Day or Garbage or it's Kildos or whatever. They All the parts need to make sense. And so I think there was, even in the sound of the dirge, of Killdozer, there was some clarity in what we were doing and what the record sounded like. And I think, I know that's why Billy Corrigan called because he liked the sound of those records. Yeah, I was going to say, so you get this call from Billy Corrigan. He's like, hey, I love this record you did. Let me come meet you. So talk to me about kind of that, that early meeting with Billy. I think you said the band walked in and they looked so cool. So I was reminiscing about what the pumpkins looked like back in the day. Billy had long hair. He was wearing jewelry. It was a different thing back then, right? Darcy was in the Darcy band. Darcy was in the band. James, yeah. they, they, were, they showed up on a Saturday morning at Smart, and we were scheduled just to record two days. It was for a single. I think it was going to be a sub-pop single. And... Um, you know, they drove up in the band from Chicago, opened the door, and they're standing there, and I go, wow, Smashing Pumpkins, and they look cool as shit. I mean, they <laughs> yeah. just did. Darcy, you know, she pale, great. really long blonde hair. James looked really cool. They looked exotic to yeah. me as a band. And uh, and they went in and started playing and just warming up, and uh, I, I just realized right away, wow, they're re- incredible sounding, incredibly powerful. And, uh, and um, we just did two songs, uh, I think it was Tristessa and La Dali Vida, which were the tracks that we did that, that became that first single. And um, I was blown away, blown away by them as as musicians, and uh, and Billy's songwriting. And Billy and I really clicked. He had a vision, and I think right away we realized that we were really good for each other. We had a good symbiotic relationship. Like I could really push him, and he could really push me, and it, it worked. It's funny, I was just watching something that Billy was talking about, the fact that he was wore, you wore a vest every time you'd record with him early on. So he <laughs> oh, somehow, God, he, yeah. I guess that made it, you know, it made it more official or something early yeah. on. Yeah, right? so. he, he, he makes fun of me. <laughs> it, it is true. I, I used to wear like J. Crew t-shirts, and then I thought, well, I'm a record producer. I should at least dress up somehow, and I would <laughs> yeah. I would wear just the this vest. black vest over it. Yeah. It was either a t-shirt or we would go to the thrift shop, and like back in the day, I had lots of flannel shirts, yeah. you know, so I'd put a flannel shirt on, then put a black vest over it, and you know, I was kind of <laughs> dressed up. You're ahead of your time, Butch. It's funny. So <laughs> early on, you've always had this incredible relationship with drummers, being that you're a drummer. So Jimmy Chamberlain and your connection, it's always been an incredibly powerful one. Talk to me about your relationship with Jimmy. As a drummer, I can tell you one of my biggest influences, and so incredible. I mean, it's sort of like this tribal feeling when you hear Jim, you listen back to Gish and those early records and it's like no other drummer I'd ever heard at that point and the roles and all the fills that he was doing so what did you see early on and sort of his playing that you that kind of resonated with you well I used to get a call at least once a year from Taylor Hawkins saying here he texts me I'm listening to Gish it just still blows my mind it blows my mind he he was such a fan of Jimmy's yeah. drumming and the sound of that record Taylor rest in peace man I'm yeah. still uh, I, I heard a Foo song on the way here in the, in the car, and it just breaks my heart that he's not with us, you know. Yeah, I want to get into that, too. Um, Jimmy Chamberlain has jazz chops, and he can play a variety of styles. I think the thing that I find exciting about his music, the way he, his approach to the drums, is he has this sort of push-pull. I, like, I wouldn't... I don't even think we really used any click tracks, maybe on one or two songs, and I don't think we did any on Gish, and maybe we did on a couple on Siamese Dream. I think we did at least one on Siamese Dream. Anyway, 
it's better to let him just play because he's got this push pull and the way he plays with Billy on guitar they sort of symbiotic. it's also very symbiotic and it's like the front of the bar pushes and then it pulls back at the end of the bar and then it pushes forward again it's just something I noticed it gets very hypnotic in in the in the way he plays and the way they play as a band and uh yeah he's just he's just incredible and uh I was lucky enough in my band five billion and diamonds we uh, recorded an extra song for the vinyl release that came out last year of our, our album Divine Accidents. We wrote this song called A Thin Lime and I had programmed a beat on the drum machine and I was like am I going to play this or what and I kept listening to it and, and all of a sudden something a light bulb eureka moment went off in my head that's a Jimmy Chamberlain groove <laughs> yeah. and I texted him and said I have this song with my sideband Five Billion and Diamonds are you interested in playing it? He goes mm, send it to me so I sent him a wave file and the next morning I woke up in my Dropbox and the drums were done. And he'd done an Amazing. incredible take. And it, it's totally, I, and I, it was right, just the way he, it was like a 6-8. Just amazing. And he nailed it. So cool. It's also the first time I would say that, you know, drums were like a hook of a song that I can remember. Obviously, you went on to work with, we were talking about Taylor and Dave. All those guys write hooks. And as being a drummer, it's so incredible to hear that record when you listen back to it the drums were as much of a hook as like the lead guitar at that point right totally and i love drummers that realize that because i you know it's great if you want to express your chops every time with a new fill when you're going to the chorus or coming out of the chorus or the bridge or whatever but when you write parts kick and snare patterns or tom patterns then you come up with these little motifs whether it's the groove or a drum fill it just makes the strong better. Listen to Nevermind. Listen every exactly. single fill on that record. Dave Grohl figured out, and there's a there's a reason that it was that way. He wanted it to be a hook, and he would repeat it over and over and over. Yeah, and when you listen to Chad on their early records, and then Dave Grohl, the sound of the band changes dramatically, obviously. But uh, let's talk a little bit about Gish. I mean, obviously, it opened up so many doors for you. Was there drama involved when you made the record? Did it go smoothly? How did it go for you? Well, Gish went pretty smooth. Um, but I realized right away that uh, Billy wanted to play most of the instrumentation because, uh, honestly, he's just a notch up than... Well, he couldn't play the drums. Jimmy played the drums. Right. but And Darcy and, and James would track, but uh, they played very little on the record on that and Siamese Dream. Billy went back and overdubbed most of the parts oh, because, because he could play the bass and, and lock it in like better than Darcy could, even though Darcy is a great bass player. Yeah. And... Um, and Billy also heard things in his head a very specific way. So, And that caused some tension. I mean, they were a band. They'd go out and play the songs live, and they sounded incredible. But in the studio, there was tension. It really escalated more, though, on Siamese Dream, because then they were also feeling pressure to have a hit album, you know, to, to have this album that sort of took them to another level, especially after I did Gish and then did Nevermind, which exploded. Just yeah. the, the weight of the world was on the band's back when we went into do Siamese Dream. Yeah, talk to me about that a little bit. So obviously you go on, you do Gish, and then you get a call at some point to do Nevermind. So I think initially for that record, they'd wanted to work with another producer, and the label was trying to get someone else to do it. I don't know who that producer was at this point, but definitely they were going to work with someone else early on for that record, right? Do you, did we ever find out who was scheduled to do that record early on? Um, there were a bunch of people on a list. Um, I remember because I talked to Chris Novoselic about it, and I think one was Don Dixon, who'd worked with R.E.M., uh, I think maybe Ed Stasium, uh, Neil Young's producer, his name escapes me right now, um, who did all, who mixed all Neil's stuff. Uh, what's his name? Damn. Um, 
And the band met with like three or four different producers, and uh, they just didn't like him. They didn't click. And I think maybe because I had done the smart sessions before with them when Chad had drummed with them, that they felt comfortable and mostly coming from sort of a punk pedigree that maybe they felt a little more safe. Yeah. The label was not very happy about my choice. But at the 11th hour, I got a call from Chris and said, you know, we, we just want to work with you. Are you up for it? I go, yes, I am. And and they said, well, can you start? Ne- can we do it next week? <laughs> I'm like, uh, okay, sure. I can clear my schedule out. And uh, I said, is there any way I can hear some songs? Yeah, so I know, I said, I'd like to have some pre-production time so I can go in and just, you know, I know you got a new drummer and uh, I'd like to hear what the songs are and we can finesse the arrangements and stuff. And they said, sure, but they didn't want to spend more than like three or four days doing that. You know, so, sometimes you go in with a band and you work for a month yeah. on pre-production until the songs are done. Anyway, and uh, a couple of days later, I got a cassette in the mail and uh, I put it in and it's Kurt saying, hey, Butch, we're going to play some new songs, and we got the best drummer in the world. His name is Dave Grohl. Take it away. And then they clicked <laughs> into Teen Spirit, and it just distorted. It was recorded on a boombox with the built-in microphones, which has this compressor, and as soon as you kick in, it just shreds, so distorted. But I could hear how powerful he was, and, and I, that's where I heard Come As You Are, and I heard Teen Spirit. I heard a lot Amazing. of the songs on that album for the first time. So I knew, uh, I knew they'd written something special. You still have that cassette, by the way? I do, yeah. That cassette is worth a lot of money at this point. <laughs> still sounds like <laughs> shit, though. <laughs> so the first time you actually saw them, I think, was at like a pizza place, like right near where you live, right? Yeah, they. Um, the, there's an Italian place called Bunkies, which is like an Italian restaurant. Downstairs was like a little cafe pizza parlor that held maybe 100 people or so. And they, this was during the smart sessions. They decided to play a gig in the middle of the week, uh, or like on a Thursday night. And um, and there, there was a good crowd. There were like 60 or 70 people. People, you know, had it's in the local scene kind of knew about Nirvana. I think they'd put out a couple sub-pop singles. And Bleach was out at that point, so they definitely had a following. Um, and they, they were awesome, man. They sounded so good. And uh, I've never seen someone sing so hard. Kurt completely blew his voice out. Wow. He couldn't even finish the set. They just sort of jammed on three or four songs, and Chris was yelling in the mic. They, they'd had a few cocktails during the show. <laughs> and um, we went you know, we went in the studio the next day. They were, we were supposed to finish some songs, and Kurt couldn't sing. He couldn't even talk. Wow. So I said, well, why don't I just rough mix the stuff we have, and, and uh, we'll just figure a time you guys to come back, because they were going out to play more shows in the Midwest. And, um, and then I didn't hear anything for uh, weeks and weeks, and I called... Jonathan Poneman, the head of Sub Pop, one of the heads of Sub Pop, and he said, yeah, we want to come in like in August or whatever the date was, but now the band is uh, interested in signing to a major label. That's all he said. And it turns out I had sent them a cassette of their rough mixes, and they put it in one of those dubbing boot boom boxes, and they made 100 copies and gave them out to all their friends. They bootlegged themselves. They bootlegged themselves, <laughs> much to the anger of Sub Pop. Of it's like, here's our new Sub Pop album. <laughs> now everybody's got it and is playing it, you know? By the way, when you first heard Teen Spirit or you first saw them at that first gig, what went through your head? I and mean, we were like, is this a band that's going to change culture? This is the band that's going to change the face of music? Well, the first time I heard Teen Spirit was the first song they played in, in North Hollywood rehearsal studio. And uh, Dave walked up and goes, hey, Butch, I'm Dave. Nice to, nice to meet you. And I go, cool, man. And, and I, they were, it was a pretty big room they were set up in. Uh, and I noticed there were no mics on Dave's kit. 
and and Kurt had a big Mesa Boogie system set up on his guitar, and Chris had his SVT bass rig, and they were both really loud. I'm thinking, maybe should I put a kick and snare mic on the drums and run them through the wedges? And Nate goes, nah, you don't need it. And they kicked into Teen Spirit, and they played so ferociously, and Dave hit the drums so effing loud, I was just like, oh, my God. But the hair in the back of my neck went up because the song was so good. Yeah. And I, I remember I had a notebook, and I was pacing around the room, and they finished it, and uh, the the sound, the, the symbols all sort of, the sound just died out. And Kurt said, what do you think? I go, play it again. It's awesome. Play it again. I just let me collect my thoughts. I, I hadn't written down any notes at all. I was just sort of blown away by it. And then I started taking notes on the songs, little tweaky things just to, to tighten up the arrangements and things. But, man, they were good and so tight. I didn't know this until later that they had practiced pretty much every single day for mm. six months before before they came down to make Nevermind. So they were pretty focused. Because early on you had worked with them with Chad. At that point, did you think this is the same band or this, is, this band has taken another level with Dave at that point? Well, I could kind of tell in that boombox recording because they sounded super tight, even though it was distorted. Yeah, you could yeah. just hear the feel of the band. And that's where I heard some of the new songs. So I know that uh, Kurt had really upped his game in terms of uh, melodic sensibility. You know, uh, he really, he was writing these anthems, but he was writing um, uh, super hooky, you know, the, all the melodies. And just, that's one of the reasons that record is so successful. The songs are really, really hooky. Definitely. It's interesting. I was hearing this great story about the fact that you were telling Kurt early on, I want you to double the vocals. And, and he was like, listen, that's not us. Ultimately, you talked to him about the Beatles and Lennon and really said to him, look at what John Lennon did. And that's kind of how you got him to agree to do that, right? Yeah. I mean, at first, Kurt said he wanted to record the band Oh Naturel. Let's just record it live. I'll set up in a vocal booth. Let's keep it all live. And I said, it's just going to sound like a live recording. You know, when you go into the studio, you use the studio and the tools available to make an album sound larger than life, to make it sound widescreen. You do that by adding harmonies and doubling vocals and doubling guitars and compression and EQ and effects and things like that. And he's like, oh, you know, whatever. It, but but the first day when I asked him to double track his vocal, he said, I don't, I don't really want to do that. I, I just think it's fake. And I said, well, John Lennon did it on pretty much everything he sang. And, and then there was just a pause. And then Kurt said, okay, let's do it. Do you think it was sort of him trying to stick with his punk rock kind of ethos? Like, I don't want to double the vocals because ultimately all the bands I love, whether it be Fugazi or none of those guys would do something like that, right? Yeah, I mean, it, there was definitely a, a punk ethic thing that he was grappling with. He didn't want to stray too far from his roots. But that was a strange dichotomy working within the band within Kurt's head because he wanted to be huge. He wanted to make a big record. He, you know, he had drawn all these things of them playing the Enormo Dome with like 50,000 people watching them. You know, he, he was swinging for the fences, but constantly grappling with, I have to stay true to my punk Opera. authenticity. And yeah. that, that was, you know, that haunted him through his whole career, through his yeah. whole life. You know, I always bond with Courtney over the fact that we both love Cheap Trick, and I feel like they're one of the most underrated bands of all time. Even Courtney's manager, JD, who I'm very close with, we always talk about Cheap Trick. And it had been said that Kurt had said that Nirvana, you know, that record in particular was like a souped-up version of a Cheap Trick record. Are you a Cheap Trick fan? I, I think am, one of the most underrated bands of all time, by the way. I am a massive Cheap Trick fan, a ma massive Cheap Trick fan. I've seen them... Uh, probably play about 25 times over the year, over the last 30, 40 years, whatever it is. Um, I, I love Robin Zander. It has to be the greatest rock vocalist in the world. I, I mean, he just, <laughs> I he does not, his voice is not 
lessened at all. He's he brings it every time. And he doesn't get the respect he deserves, by the way. I mean, yeah, great band, Bunny Carlos, awesome drummer. Amazing. We we years ago we mixed a thing for this. I think it was MTV spinoff called Reverb. They were having these uh, live bands record, filming them, and then they they'd mix it. And we were doing some of the mixing at Smart, and we mixed a a, a cheap trick one. And the engineer, uh, Doug Olson, and I were putting the tracks up, and he's listening to the drums, going, wow, the drums don't really sound that good. Solo up the bass, doesn't really sound that good. Put up the guitar, man, that sounds really scrappy. Put the vocal up. He just put all the faders up, and it sounded killer. <laughs> it, it did not sound very good individually, and you just mix it up. Just put them all up around zero, and it sounded godlike. It's just the way they played together, you know. It's it was pretty in- incredible to hear that. Yeah, I was asking you actually when you got here, was there ever any talk of you working with Courtney? And you had mentioned that there was a little bit of that early on, but that you never did, obviously. No, when I was doing Siamese Dream in Atlanta, Kurt called a bunch of times and he'd say, "Butch, you got to do Courtney's next record. It's going to be great. She's got some great songs." And I, I was really deep in Siamese Dream, which was an extremely long, arduous record. And it was hard for me even to get my head about thinking about doing another album at the time. And um, and, and, and so I go, well, let me just, I don't even know what the end date is on this, you know. And, and I think I'm pr- probably going to need a short break before I go into another record. But just let me think about it. And then I would hang up and tell Billy Corgan that. They ended up working together. And they ended up working yeah. together. Yeah, he, they saying. wrote songs together. Yeah, yeah. amazing and, songs, uh, by the way. That was lived through this, right? And uh wasn't that the record that they went in then and recorded in the same studio that the Pumpkins had yeah, gone in? Yeah. Um, and, the re- and the songs are great on that record. I, one thing I really love now, my daughter is 17, Bo, and she is starting to get into uh, some of the stuff. alt-rock stuff from the 90s, and, and she's, a, she's a Courtney fan. She loves, uh, she loves a bunch of the songs. Amazing. Doll Parts and uh, yeah. Yeah, some of the tracks from Celebrity Skin. Yeah, it's cool. Well, let's talk about this for a minute. So you end up doing, just rewinding a second, you do Nevermind. It becomes the record that blew it all up for you. Obviously, so many bands came to you, so many labels. Butch has the Midas Touch. Every band wanted you to work with them. Were there any bands that you had to turn down at that point because you went on to do Siamese Dream, but any bands that you kind of regret at that point turning down because you just couldn't work with everyone at that point, right? It got kind of silly because... I think, like you, you pointed out, Scott, a lot of managers or A&R people or publishing people thought, oh, here's this new thing, and I have some sort of magic formula right. I could sprinkle on to an artist and, and change them into a band that sounds like Nirvana. Any genre. Yeah, and, and it, it was yeah, any genre. And right. so I started getting blues artists and yeah. country artists. I, I'm not kidding. And, and you know, f- fairly big names. And, uh, and I just, yeah, it's, uh, I only, I was lucky. I kind of still just picked things that I wanted to do. I, I did a couple oddball projects at the time. I took on uh, Freddie Johnston, um, a singer-songwriter who I love yeah. because I just loved his songwriting. I met him, and he's just, a, I'm still really good friends with him to this day. Um, I turned down a lot of, yeah, a lot of big bands. Uh, the, 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 probably the one that I was most intimidated about that I maybe should have done but I turned on was I did meet with Mick Jagger about Amazing. working with the Rolling Stones and I was intimidated because as I said I was playing long to you learning how to <laughs> yeah. play the drums man and uh, <laughs> nice guy you, by the way though Mick yeah now That's you want great. me to go produce you and as it turns out I this is right when garbage was starting out too and, and just it it's like if I would have had time in my schedule I might have gone and at least record try to record some songs like let's go in and record two songs and see how it goes you know and, but I, I didn't have the time so so but you actually met with him 
I did, yeah. How'd it go? How was the meeting? Well, he's friggin' Mick Jagger, man. He, he's the coolest. He's my, charming. Yeah, he's great. My buddy called me some years ago. He's like, can you have dinner on Wednesday night? I'm like, I think I'm I'm booked on Wednesday. What do you got? He's like, I want you to have dinner with Mick. I'm like, Mick Jagger? Why am I having dinner? And coolest guy ever, by the way. Amazing. Yeah, you know, during uh, COVID or last year, I guess last year, maybe two years ago now, Dave Grohl recorded a song with him that is a great track that they did during COVID. And I think Mick asked Dave to play drums on it, just sent the files over, and Dave did some drums as well as guitar, bass, and added backing vocals. And he, I think Dave put down about 30 more tracks. And, and Mick left them all in there when he mixed the song, and it's a really cool song. It never came out, I don't think. No, I think it, it did come out. Oh, it yeah. did come out, okay. I can't remember the title right now, but it came out about a year and a half ago, and, the, and Jagger's singing is fantastic, and uh, and the lyrics are great. I'll have, I'll, we'll have to do a deep dive, yeah. and we can add it in. It's funny because when Dave texted me the track, he goes, check check this out. Who is it? I listened to it, and I wrote him back. That's a really, whoever it is, they sound like a damn good Mick Jagger clone. <laughs> and he goes, that is Mick. I was like, holy shit. By the way, there's some rumblings that Mick is working with Paul McCartney and Ringo on this new record, so I'd love to hear what they come up with. Yeah, um, I, heard the, I heard those rumblings too. Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, so talk me a little bit about, let's talk about Sonny's Dream, obviously one of the, and I want to get into some of the lesser talked about records, Sonic Youth, Urge Overkill, so many great records that you worked on. But uh, Siamese Dream in particular, another record that I think sort of changed your life, right? Incredible record. Took five months versus the two weeks or 16 days that Nirvana, so never mind, took. So that record in particular and the production technique was so lush, such an incredible record. When you listen back on it, fond memories? Well... Fond memories, yes. Or challenging I, memories. Challenging memories, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm incredibly proud of that album. It was really hard work. Um, just the performances and, and how high we set the bar sonically, what we wanted to do. This was before Pro Tools, where it's very easy to sort of fix things and, and make things sound more perfect. Um, and everything, every note on that record had to be played. And uh, and there's a lot of layering and sonic uh tweaking going on during the both Bailey and I did during the record and uh, I think we originally scheduled about three months and then it ended up taking about five months to record and the last two months we worked seven days a week like I go in at noon and work till like two or three in the morning and uh, then we came out to LA to mix we moved into rumbo recorders out in the valley and I thought it would be about three weeks and that ended up being six weeks and uh, we brought in Alan Mulder to mix because we needed someone with a perspective because Billy and I were so burnt out and uh, had somewhat lost some of our objectivity, I think. And Alan was great, and we loved him because he'd worked with My Bloody Valentine, and uh, we're, Billy and I were both huge sure. fans of that band. And Alan was perfect for us because he, he really got it. He's also just an incredible producer-engineer and allowed Billy and me to step back and then come into the into the mix room and, and be have a more firm opinion of what needed to be done but we kidnapped him alan was supposed to be there three weeks and and uh we wouldn't let him go <laughs> and finally the last day he goes i have to go i'm gonna get fired up i missed this thing and da, da, da. and it was like a saturday friday or saturday and uh billy and i like well i can mix the last song whatever and and he took off and we were bummed because i mean i think we mixed lunar one of the quiet so songs sure. is the last thing which was also a really easy mix to do all a really dense tracks had been mixed that at that point but yeah he was a star but man i was i had as i knew that it was going on and on and on i took off about i think it was almost a month or three weeks or four four weeks that i i went out to a friend's house in palm springs and i just sort of laid out in his backyard and stared at the <laughs> stared up at the stars every night for about three weeks and i needed it 
to be fair, I mean, when you first started working with the Pumpkins and Gish, you were relatively unknown. The band was relatively unknown. I imagine the dynamic might have changed having done Nevermind. Did it change working on Sami's Dream? Because so much had happened between those few years, right? There was a lot of pressure on the band, particularly on Billy Corgan. And uh, we were supposed to start their record at least six months earlier. And I went down to Chicago and I heard them rehearse some of the songs in their rehearsal space. And I, I loved them. And Billy gave me a couple cassettes, but I, I, I hadn't heard everything. So we got in his car and started driving around in Chicago like at 10 o'clock at night, and he'd start to play a song, and then he'd just turn it off. And I could see him thinking, go, what, just play it, let me hear the song. He goes, no, I, I can't play it, it's not ready yet. Like and 10 I, seconds of the song? Yeah, and, and so I go, that's that's really, you're not being very nice <laughs> to me right now. You're torturing me. And, uh, and there were about seven or eight songs like that that he only played literally 10 or 20 seconds. And, and, and then I looked at him and said, so you're not quite ready. And he goes, I'm not quite ready. And uh, then he kept writing for about, at least it was like four or five months. So we pushed the start of the record back. But that's where he wrote Cherub Rock. He wrote Disarm. Uh, some of the key tracks on the record, like Rocket was done. I, I'd heard that one. I think he and James wrote the song Mayonnaise, which is at the end of the record, which I love. Uh, Soma, I think, was one of the songs. Um, anyway, he, he needed that time. And he, oh, oh, he also wrote Today, yeah, which became the, the big single on the record. And, and I think he knew with all his expectations, I, he had to also push himself in terms of his songwriting. Yeah, it's funny because you had worked with other bands. I had mentioned Urge Overkill but before Gish. But really, Gish was the record that sort of broke it through for you. So did you feel like a pressure? I, I heard Billy was talking about the fact that you know, he really, you and him both wanted this record to be the record that really, you know, made it for them ultimately because having coming off Nevermind, was there like a pressure that you felt like, I really want this record to succeed for them? Yeah, I mean, I felt the pressure too because everybody kept saying, oh, it's going to be huge. It's going to be massive. And that's before we recorded one <laughs> right, note. You know, right. you don't want people telling you that. Well, coming off the last record, you can kind of understand why that would be, I guess. Yeah, right? yeah. So we... We sequestered ourselves and, and kind of went into uh, isolation. We recorded a studio in the burbs of Atlanta, Triclops. Um, so there was no record company around, and we didn't have friends from Chicago or Madison around. Although Jimmy, being Jimmy at the time, you know, he was kind of a bad boy. And within a, within a few days, he had a, there's a parade of these drug dealers coming through the <laughs> studio with a, with a satchel. Like, what's in that satchel, dude? You got to get out of here. Guy with a briefcase coming in every 10 yeah, minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I know, and Billy, you know, James and Darcy had been a couple, and they were splitting up. There was tension. Uh, James and Darcy had been a couple, and they were splitting up, so there was tension between them. And there was tension between them and Billy, and Billy was feeling a lot of pressure uh, in terms of songwriting and performance, and I think he, he felt like the band wasn't necessarily 100% behind him. And Jimmy went disappeared for like three days at the start. He went on a bender. Um, so there were some rough patches. We had to have like an intervention at one point where the management and the label all came in and we just wow. had a, everybody sat in the studio and they basically, it was like screaming therapy. Everybody just unloaded all their bad feelings. It was hard, hard to sit through that kind of stuff. Yeah. Do you usually know when you do a record like that or never mind that, again, this is a record that's really going to change what's going on in music and culture or sometimes you're not spied on with that stuff? I don't know that I'm ever really aware of what kind of impact it'll have um like when i finished nevermind i just knew the songs are really great you know and i thought maybe maybe it'll 
be as uh, as big as the Pixies, you know. Maybe they'll right. sell five hundred thousand copies. Uh, you, you just don't know. Um, the same with Siamese Dream, um, because the, the Pumpkins are sort of a difficult record, a difficult band. The Pumpkins are kind of a difficult band to digest sometimes because they can be really heavy, really aggressive, kind of psychedelic, um, vulnerable. Like Billy's singing yeah. can very be very feminine, even though sometimes the music can come across very testosterone. Um, so a lot of things going on in their music, and and uh, and they weren't really a top forty band. I mean, today might have got got on a few top forty charts here and there, but it still had loud guitars in it. And you know, back in the day, if you're in alt music, it was hard to sort of cross over into the mainstream. So we we didn't really know what kind of success it was going to have, but I knew sonically it was going to be cool sounding, and uh, and I knew that they had had really written some great songs. So then you just have to let it put it out there and see what happens you yeah know? all those records still sound so relevant today when you go back and listen to them so it's, it's great but some records that a lot of people don't talk about that you've done obviously let's get into a little bit sonic youth obviously let's talk about stuff i i know that you also worked on you know things like soul asylum great record so talk to me about your experience working with sonic youth and soul asylum early on because a lot of people talk about Siamese dream and never mind but those are some records i feel like that don't get you know the due that they deserve well, I'm, I love Sonic Youth. I When I got a call to work with them, they had signed to Geffen, and I think probably because of their relationship. They might have helped bring uh, Nirvana to Geffen, so I think mm-hmm. they had some uh, a little star power there. I had seen Sonic Youth play and loved the band, and when I got a call to go to New York to meet them, I was intimidated because I thought, wow, they're, they're the coolest, the hipsters in New York. They're smart and arty and you know i'm just this uh, dumb kid from wisconsin you know what am i i'm going to meet these these uh indie rock darlings indie rock superstars and uh they couldn't have been farther from that they were when i met them they were funny and self-deprecating and really outgoing and i just fell in love with all of them right away and um uh the the first couple meetings we had just talking about songs and how we wanted to record we decided to do it in new york at the magic shop which is a studio that's no longer there but was a is a great one room studio in soho that uh, uh which had this incredible british neve console a broadcasting console um and, and it was a great experience it, we had so much fun making that record um you don't think about sonic youth and fun for some well reason. <laughs> <You> b- <feel laughs> like... because i mean they i i think they trusted me also maybe the same way that uh, Nirvana did, um, that I had come from a sort of a punk background and a lot of the production I had done. So so as long as they could retain some of that in the music. And and uh, I knew I had to, they had to sound like Sonic Youth. So, I, you know, we worked harder. I, we doubled some guitars in, in, in terms of the Sonics and things. I spent more time engineering. and I pushed them to get really good arrangements. It took me a while to sort of figure out how they play because they the tunings are so strange. It's not typical yeah. guitar tunings. I'd look at a rack of Thurston's guitars, and I'd look at the back of the headstock, and the strings would say, like, F-sharp, F-sharp, D, D, D-sharp, D-sharp, F-sharp. i go, <laughs> how do you play with a tuning like that? Um, but uh, they sent me a bunch of cassettes of their rehearsals, and I listened to those, and some of them were like 10 or 15 minute these jams, and I was like, whoa. So I kind of had to sort through those and go, I think this section right here from about the three minute mark to the seven minute mark is really great i think we should focus on that in in this song some of the songs were shorter and a little bit more uh focused i guess like a like a rock or pop song but there were some epic 
songs on there. One of my favorite songs is Teresa's Sound World on that. Sure. On Dirty. I just I just love that. And that turned out to be a very hard song to record. We attempted it a couple times and it just it always didn't kind of flow right or fell apart and and the, the the night we actually tracked it in the studio, the engineer Ed Douglas is sitting next to me. We turned all the lights down low, and they started playing it. And I had it on the big speakers, and, and the hair in the back of my neck went up. I was like, "This is it, I can tell." And it sounded so epic the way the song builds. Do 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 do. Starts out with this little arpeggio guitar, and Steve Shelley's playing mallets on the drums, and it just turns into this pulse. Like it, it sounds like an orchestra. Yeah. It's so powerful, and uh, that's one of my favorite songs. Fast forward a little bit. I want to talk to you a little bit about, we were reminiscing about Taylor Hawkins, what it was like to work with him. Obviously, you've gone to do some records with the Foos. So talk to me about the experience working with Taylor and the Foos and some of those records. Well, obviously, I've known Dave Grohl for a long time, since Nevermind. And uh, over the years, when he started the Foos and, and I started Garbage, we played a lot of festivals together. Mm. Um, I remember we played some show in... Um, Lisbon and then Dave and Taylor and Duke and I and Shirley went out like club hopping at like three in the morning <laughs> bad idea uh it was a rough day the next day just because we we partied hard man um you know Taylor is uh an incredible drummer he is so sorely missed um by Foos fans but by everyone who knew him you yeah. know he was a, a great father um, he was Dave's best friend. Yeah. You know, they were like brothers joined at the hip. And uh, it's just a loss that I will probably never, you know, Dave's never really going to recover from it in yeah. some some ways. But um, he, he's moving on. You know, there, he's, he wants to make music, and I think he has to make music, you know, Tough in one. order to, to be Dave Grohl. Um, Taylor brought this incredible energy to the Foos that was so vibrant and uh if if in the studio it was so much fun because just of the back and forth banter between the band particularly between taylor and dave and and there's some self-deprecation going on you know not thinking they're too full of themselves yeah. i mean both guys are like that i mean dave's an incredible drummer too that was the hardest thing for taylor i think my boss is possibly better than me <laughs> right. on drums, you know? I don't think I could ever be in a band with Dave Grohl. I mean, the, the intimidation yeah. of knowing whatever part you're going to play Yeah, Dave can play better. Critiqued. It's Well, I don't, it's, and, and Dave can play everything better. Yeah. The guitars, bass, <laughs> yeah. whatever. He's, he's, he's that guy. He's so effing good. I'm sure Taylor struggled with that a little bit, like as any drummer would. Yeah, he, there was, he had some insecurities, but yeah. he, he was just so good. And I think sometimes he probably overcompensated. He was... He was constantly practicing, constantly playing. Yeah. He at home, he'd come in, hey Butch, let me show you these fills, and he'd play these crazy patterns and things like, oh, how did you figure that out, man? He really appreciated uh, uh, the technical ability of drummers. I mean, that's why he would call me listening to Gish. Yeah. You know, or text me every year. I can't believe how great Gish sounds. And Jimmy Chamberlain is just a monster. And and I appreciated that when he would when uh, when T would text me like that. So. It's just, uh, it's so, I still can't believe he's gone. I have a picture of him in my studio at home that I see every day. I go down there and sit there, and he's just smiling at me from behind oh, the kit. Amazing. But, man, I miss him. Yeah, when you when you work with, and an incredible drummer, I think we all miss him, but when you work with bands like the Foos or Nirvana or the Pumpkins or 
you know, whether it be, like I said, Sonic Youth, how does the production technique differ for you? Are you doing, are there different techniques that you're using to work with different bands like that? Maybe there's overhead mics versus miking everything up close or whatever, room mics versus whatever it may be. Are there different techniques that you're using, applying for each band? Yeah, every drummer sort of has their own feel. And then within the context of an album, every song is different. If it's slow or quiet, if there's a lot of syncopation or if there's a lot of accents on the cymbals and things that sort of dictates how you engineer it you know where you move the mics what kind of mics you move yeah. if you're going to eq them or leave them flat um you know i'm lucky that i have worked with so many great drummers because that helps that is easily yeah. a good i wouldn't say 50 percent of cutting a track but it's it's a big percentage of if you're recording a rock band if the drum player the rhythm section is good because that the feel is so important in, in rock and roll, you know, whether you want to have a push or you want to be groovy and have that sort of push-pull feeling yeah. or whether you want to have space, you know. Um, How often would you have to replace drummers on certain records? Or would you try not to do that? I try it? not to do that. And yeah. I think uh, it's only really, really only happened, I think, on one project that I can think. Um, and really that it, because the band sort of insisted that uh, they wanted to make a change. So... Um, I, when I've worked with drummers who are not on the level of Dave Grohl or Taylor, I, which is most drummers. Well, yeah. Um, I, I, like when I did the first, um, against me record, um, Warren played drums and Warren is a great drummer. He had a great feel. He had kind of a cool shuffle swing thing, but he wasn't great at some of the rock stuff and he was not very consistent tempo wise. Mm. So we, we worked out tempo maps on it with a click track and a tempo map is where i'll listen to them rehearse and i'll mark down where i think that the bpm is good in the intro and where it is so it doesn't have to all the song doesn't always have to be the same exact tempo all the way through it can speed up in the course it can slow down on the bridge or whatever in the verses and so i make a tempo map and then when they're retracking it live i speed the, the click track up and down for these sections so the drummer can i, I sort of address to where the drummer feels good but then i also have it's being cut to a click, so when I go and I start editing, I know where the sections are. It makes my job easier putting a track together. I know that sounds overly complicated, but um, we spent a lot of time on Warren's drums on uh, a new wave, and to the point where uh, Laura Jane Grace is like, is there going to be enough budget to finish recording <laughs> the record? I still need to do vocals. <laughs> and uh, Billy Bush, the engineer, we put in a couple uh, long, like just went with some extra time on the weekends just getting the drums edited and all tweaked out, so... So we'd have plenty of time to finish all the overdubs. But, uh, yeah, I, I guess maybe because I'm a drummer, I feel sympathetic. Like I want to give them the best, all the tools I have yeah. and, and do the best, get the best performances out of them. And, unless, of course, it just, it's not working. And sometimes it's not even their playing. Sometimes it's a chemistry thing. Personalities in the band are no longer working, you know. But luckily, knock on wood, I've only really had to do that once. I would, yeah, had to I was, replace a drummer. I was going to say, I always wonder what Zeppelin would sound like to a clip track because it changes the whole feel of a song. Some of the best records were not recorded to click tracks. But do you prefer the old school way record, the knee boards and analog versus Pro Tools and digital these days? What do you prefer when you think about all the great records you made? Well, I prefer... Uh, great uh, consoles to record with. Um, like the Sound City board. Sound City board, a Neve, yeah. or a tri I love Trident boards, uh, API boards. Um, the 70s API boards are so great for rock records. Um, but I prefer recording in a digital system. I love Pro Tools because I love the flexibility of editing and being able to take a song and go, let's take the first course 
and move it and start the song with a chorus and yeah. see what it sounds like. You just cut, cut, boom, boom, a couple clicks on the keypad and you can hear it. If you like it or not, you don't like it, you hit splat Z and you undo it and, and that's fine. When I first started recording all analog tape, I became the king of razor editing, tape razor. Because <laughs> people don't know, you used to usually have to take the tape and put it together. It was so hard and the process is so different than it is now. Yeah, a band would do three or four takes and I go, take two is great, but I really like the outro fills you did on take three and actually the intro is best on take four. So I'd say, you guys go across the street and get a beer and a grilled cheese and I'm going to edit this together and I would take all the... You'd pull out like you'd mark the start of the chorus and and, and cut it all with a china uh, mark it with a china marker and then cut it and have all these big chunks on nails in the room. Okay, there's verse one laying over there. There's the fills on the end over there, and then <laughs> then you have to assemble it all back together. And then you hold your breath and hit play and hope you didn't screw up. You know that. Uh, and I got really good at that. That was I guess that's why I like Pro Tools because the editing is so much easier. So than, much easier than doing tape editing. Definitely. Well, fast forward. Let's talk about Garbage. Obviously, the tour is coming up. You're just finishing the new record. The new record's coming out. I think this is your eighth record. Right? This is our eighth record. Yeah, we're hoping to finish. We're about halfway into recording, and uh, we're going on tour June 1st, uh, a run through uh, North America with Noel Gallagher. We're co-headlining with Noel, and we're very excited about that because we're all we're Noel fans and Oasis fans. and. And uh, he's he's like one of the best songwriters yeah. from the '90s, man. He Definitely. wrote a lot of massive hits, no really question. really well constructed songs. And I met him a couple times before, and he's a cool dude. We met on some of the like K Rock, Weenie Roast uh, radio things back in the day. Um, and Metric is playing with us. I'm a big fan of Metric too, sure. Canadian band. Yeah. Um, so that'll be cool. That's that runs in June and July. Then we're home in August, and we go to South America in September. We're playing some shows with the Foo Fighters, some big stadium shows and things. That'll be cool. Right. Well, early on, I think I think the last record was finished in isolation, right? So this record, you all got in a room, and you, is that how this record was made? Yeah, we started uh, recording last fall, November into December. In uh, Our engineer, Billy, has a studio in Atwater, Red Razor, and we, we hole up there, and that's the four of us in the room, and Billy just records us jamming. And, uh, and then we sort of take those jams and we'll start to edit them down into what we think is, this part's cool here, I really like what Shirley's saying here, and we'll we'll take a 20-minute jam and edit it down to like four or five minutes and try to distill a song out of that. And we probably got about 14 or 15 songs like that that are in various states of uh, completion. And uh, so I, I'm hoping, we'll, I'm pretty sure we'll go back in and and uh, finish it probably October, November. That's at least on the calendar for us. So, but I tell you, it was hard uh, finishing a record in isolation. Yeah, I thought it would be easy. We were we were ninety five percent done with the record when COVID hit, and uh, you know, I guess well, we won't see you guys. I guess next <laughs> week because we have to stay home. We're on lockdown. No one even knew what that meant or how long it was going to go on. And uh, Shirley had a few vocals to finish, and I had some editing to do. Duke had Steve had a few guitars. And it was hard for all of us to sort of get motivated to do that on your own in uh, lockdown. It, it went on for a couple months before we actually sort of buckled down and, and started finishing things. And Because uh, Shirley had never really recorded on her own before, right? I mean, this is something new for everyone, I guess, that was sort of going through this. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's just, it is, you know, when you're used to recording in a room and you get feedback... Um, that can be a very positive thing because it's uh, you less, when you're singing something in the right direction or, or, or if it's criticism, you maybe dial that down or push it or go to a higher note, you know, whatever. You're looking for feedback because you want 
you want to get the best performances you can. And when you're doing it by yourself, there's no one there to give you any feedback. And uh, it, it, it's, it was hard. It, and I think just the sort of the existential nature of being in isolation too. Like I, I, there were days where I didn't do any recording at all, even though I had a home studio, I would come down and sort of sit there and I just don't feel very motivated. So I'd go outside and take my dogs for a walk, you know. <laughs> And I'd wear a mask. Right. That, By I'd yourself. see people walking down the street. Do I need to wear a mask outside? I yeah. don't know. You know, it's all it was tripping everybody out, man. Yeah. So, and and the last record, I feel like lyrically, it was a little bit political, right? I think No Gods, No Masters. So lyrically, is there a different place this record's coming from? I don't know yet, but uh, there's probably a couple themes and topics that resonate from No Gods that might trickle into this. I mean, surely... Part of it was watching the TV in isolation as she finished some of the lyrics and seeing how messed up the world is, yeah. you know. So it's definitely our most sort of social political album, and the world is just seems to be getting crazier and crazier. And I think she just felt like that's what she wanted to get off her chest, you know. And and there's a couple songs, like I said, in the new record that are sort of veering in that direction. But there's a couple songs sound like Pink Floyd on the new record, and some are it's. Uh, strange pop songs uh they're they're really hooky but s- sort of strangely constructed uh in a way it's, it's hard to tell with a garbage record until we mix it because right. a lot of the songs get final focus when we decide what to leave in or take out in the mix if that makes sense yeah you don't actually play drums for like months between records right <laughs> sometimes no years, <clears> yeah so. sometimes yeah when we finish yeah. a tour i usually go dormant uh unless uh you know unless i need to play drums in the studio um, and that's why I'm so sore today, Scott. We've just had one week of rehearsals, and uh, it's like boot camp, man. We 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 play about we, about five hours. We go in and play on and off for five hours each day. I'm headed after I leave the podcast booth here. I'm headed into the studio to rehearse. Um, but I was sore yesterday, man. You still find touring interesting? Well, I love my band, and I love connecting with the audience. I don't really like the travel the anymore. Grind. You know, grind. the grind. Yeah. yeah, it's. I mean, we're lucky we get along. You know, that we appreciate each other. We 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 take the piss out of each other on tour, <laughs> um, but we like to eat good food and go to restaurants. That we, we the last couple of years we went out, it was hard because we went out post COVID, so we were in isolation on tour too. Yeah, we had no backstage guest list. We had to wear masks everywhere except on stage, and it sort of feels like you're in prison a little bit. Wasn't a fun tour. Well, it was fun to go out and fr- play in front of people, right? Of but the, but that's only like ten percent of your day. You yeah. know, the other ninety percent, you're getting your butt dragged from point A <laughs> to point B. We have a great tour manager, Levi, too, who keeps everything very light. Right. He he keeps it smooth, as we say. So, um, and honestly, we don't know how. You know, we've been doing this for a long time. There's no guarantee how long we can keep doing it. So so we, I think we're looking forward to this run this summer. Yeah, people forget Garbage sold 17 million records. Pretty outstanding when you think about it, right? Incredible. Kind of crazy. I wish we could still sell 17 million, <laughs> but it's a little hard in the day of streaming. <laughs> well, also, it's, you are on an indie label now versus like the, the major early on for the first two records. Does things uh, things different for you now in terms of that, the way that records are marketed for you? It seems easier in a way. Um, part of that is being at this point in our career, we, there's not the kind of pop pressure to be successful that we had when the, fr- the first garbage record sold 5 million copies out of the box. And then there was a lot of pressure when the, when the records that 
happened after that, and we don't really feel that kind of pressure anymore. I mean, there's no way we're going to get played on Top 40 radio. <laughs> we understand that. The label understands that. Well, the K-Rocks, all the indie records. You know, yeah, we st- yeah, we still get some airplay out, sure. but it, it's like it's we're just going to do what we want to do, and, uh, and that, in a way, is gratifying because it just allows us to let our freak flag fly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, a couple questions, Butch, that I wanted to ask you that we ask everyone at the end of the show. Uh, so uh, let me get into it with you. Butch Vig, the top five most underrated drummers of all time. Oh, I thought about this, Scott, and just in our conversation here, I'm going to start with Steve Shelley from Sonic Youth. Amazing drummer. Amazing drummer. He, you know, he doesn't get the accolades at all that he should be getting because he always fits within their sound. You know, he, I remember in the studio mixing one of their songs, he told me to turn the drums down. <laughs> Now, what drummer what does that? Because he knew the drums are supposed to be sort of washy in the background. They're not supposed to be in the forefront. Um, but he's he's great. He's really dynamic and intuitive, and uh, he just fits in their music. They wouldn't sound like Sonic Youth if it wasn't for Steve Shelley's drumming. And a super cool dude, really one of the nicest guys, just a, a pleasure to work with in the studio. Number four. I'm going to say Topper Heaton from The Clash. I was listening to The Clash last night. And uh, London Calling is probably in my top five albums of all time. I just love that record. Every song is great, and stylistically, it goes all over the place. And yet, Topper's drumming glues it all together. He allowed he allowed that band to just stylistically play jazz and punk funk and uh, cocktail music and pop ballads and and straight up rock. And uh, he's he's an, an unsung drummer. I think he's fantastic. Yeah, I had a band the other day that tried. I tried to play Train and Van, and you realize it's actually a hard song to play. It's so simple, but it grooves like no one's business. So. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> uh, number three, I got to give one to the ladies. I'm going with Meg. White stripes. White stripes. Come on, man. Yeah. I know she got a lot of grief when the White Stripes came out because, you know, honestly, some of the tracks are a little bit loose, but they feel good, and Jack knew that. He knew that the power of just that guitar and the drums, that there's a little bit of a cool, loose feel. It's human, yeah. and yet it just, the, the grooves feel good, man. I saw him play three or four times right when they were taking off, too, and I just love her drumming. I love the way they, the two of them played together, so i I got to give her some some props so simple but she grooves so hard i agree with you number two top five most underrated drummers butch well i'm gonna say dom from the band muse now i'm he's an incredible drummer and again to me none of these guys are underrated i think they're great but he you know he's not going to be talked about like uh, john bonham or or dave or dave Grohl or people like that but he's an incredible drummer yeah because you'd work with them he can play like I, i've worked with him that's yeah. where i got to see him in the studio a uh, super nice guy. He can play these incredibly difficult parts, polyrhythmic. He's great at playing, uh, executing feel, drum fills. A lot like Neil Peart, he can play that that kind of technical drumming. But he can also just groove like a mofo. You know, just just play incredible. And and I'm a huge Muse fan. I mean, they they're just they're they're their own beast. You yeah. know, they kind of created their own sound. People forget how huge extent. they are in Europe and they're but here they're they're big too, but they're even bigger in Europe. Yeah, they they're they're a huge band, but yeah. uh Dom is a, a big part of that and he's uh, he's an incredible drummer. And the number one most underrated drummer according to Butch Vig. One of my heroes, another drummer who I practice to, Mick Fleetwood. Amazing. Now, a lot of people don't consider his drumming that good because he doesn't play anything fancy he just plays the simplest grooves but those grooves are so perfect 
you know, you listen to uh, a song, one of their big hits, Dreams. Just to, I dare a drummer to go in and play that groove perfect like that for four minutes. Just I tried it. I couldn't do it. It's so perfect, you know. And I I guess, you know, I I love drummers like that because I have a tendency to play pretty simple parts. I don't, I've never practiced drums. Uh, I think we talked about that a little bit at the start, that drumming is low on the totem pole for yeah. me. I'm songwriting, engineering, producing is more important to me. Um, so when I play, I have a tendency to play pretty simple. Um, but Mick's one of my heroes, man. I don't think you can get as understated as, as he plays and still make the groove really powerful. I agree with you. He needs to get, there needs to be more attention from Mick, Mick Fleetwood. He was on the show, by the way, not long ago. Right on. Yeah. yeah. Great, great drummer. Uh, and one more question I want to ask before we go, and obviously check out the new Garbage Record, the tour, everything Garbage related, the website, but the five most underrated rock albums, according to Butch Vig. This is in my top 20 rock albums of all time, Goodbye Jumbo by World Party. I love, love, love the record. I, uh, Carl Wallinger is the mastermind behind it. I think he played pretty much everything on that record. That album touches on songs that veer into Prince, uh, Marvin Gaye, The Beatles, The Rolling Stones. Um, there's Motown feel. Um, the lyrics are great. He's a great singer. He's got a little bit of a Mick Jagger kind of yell to his voice, a little bit of a rasp. Um but I think he self-produced the record and played everything, and, and I, there's not every song on the record is great. It sh- to me, it should have been a, a huge record at the time, and I think there was one single, uh, was it Take a Message? Uh, uh, Take a message in the bottle. There was a song that was a, a single, but it didn't do very well over here. But uh, I, I, lo- I still listen to that record. It's great. As soon as we leave here, I'm going to go check it out. By the way, I don't even know that record. But. It's great. Goodbye, Jumbo. Yeah, the first song has a... Uh, and then my TBI gets to me. I'm way down now. I'm way down now. And he starts going, hoo, 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 doing a little Rolling Stones yeah. thing at so, the end on the, on the fade out of the song. You'll, you'll love it. It's a, it's a great, great record. Amazing. Number four, most underrated rock album. Okay. First record that Topper played on, it's The Clash number two, Give Him Enough Rope. Great record. And the, there's a, you're going to see a thread here, Scott. Yeah. Um, that record didn't really do well here in the U.S. I think it did okay. It had a couple minor singles over in the over in the U.K. But I was a huge Clash fan. the f- The first track on the record was uh, it was just it's really powerful. And I remember I got it at the time, and I looked at who produced it. And the producer is Sandy Perlman. Mm. And Sandy Perlman produced my next underrated record of all time, the lead-off debut album by Blue Oyster Cult. Amazing. <laughs> I am a huge BOC fan. I'm telling you, I had all their records. We have a, a BOC playlist backstage at uh, garbage shows. Like uh, Steve Marker, our guitarist, is uh, uh, DJ Sloppy is the DJ, and every now and then he'll put a BOC playlist on and everybody knows like don't fear the reaper they had a couple big records and the record after that had godzilla that was also a big hit but that first record has some killer songs great guitar playing great drumming and uh sandy perlman produced it and i think he also co-wrote some of the lyrics i opened up for them in 87 but i will confess i really don't know that record so i'll go back and listen to that record for sure number two most underrated rock album also a debut album the first album by roxy music now, I am, was the president of the Madison chapter of the Roxy Music Fan Club. 
We sure. haven't had a meeting for a while, though. <laughs> Since Is I there a meeting coming up? Well, we could have one. I live out here in L.A. I'd have to get all the guys on Zoom. Um, I was a huge, huge, huge Roxy fan. In fact, Paul Thompson, the drummer in that band, could, I could put him in my top five underrated drummers, too. I, I really love his drumming. Uh, just an incredible force within the band, able to play a lot of different styles. But that first record is really what sort of defined... Roxy is an art band. I mean, the, the 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 songs are quite eclectic. And Eno's on the first two records. He's on the debut record. There's a lot of crazy synth on there. Brian Ferry's lyrics and his singing is really melodramatic and kind of over the top. And uh, arrangement-wise, they just sound like they were from outer outer space. I just love that record. Amazing. And the number one most underrated rock album, according to Butch Vig, New York Dolls debut album. I was blasting it last weekend. Great choice. And I think, I can't remember, I didn't look at the credits on it, but was that produced by Todd Rundgren? I think Todd might have done the first, maybe the first two records. But great pop songs. They were a band that should have been huge, and it just didn't happen. You know, they looked cool, wrote great songs. David Johansson is an incredible front man. Uh, I just saw a, a trailer for a documentary. Yeah, I with, saw uh, it. Yeah, how, it looks great, It was man. good. It was yeah. good. I mean, they don't get into as much of the doll stuff as they do his solo stuff. Yeah, which yeah. They, but uh, I listen to Johnny Thunder's solo records all the time. Yeah. You can't put your arms around a memory. It's incredible great. Song. Yeah, yeah. And uh, an incredible band. They should have been huge. Yeah. It was all there. They just looked fantastic. And then the record flopped. So there you go. There you go, kids. The top five most underrated rock albums, according to Butch Vig. Butch, it was a pleasure. Check out Garbage on tour. The new record comes out when? Don't have an exact release date yet. I'm guessing if we finish in uh, October, November, it'll probably be out like in late February next year. So, yeah, probably about, probably, I'm guessing probably February. We'll do a part two and part three coming up. It was a pleasure. Yeah, and uh, Brian and Nick, you're right. You're awesome. I appreciate you coming on. Cool. Awesome. Thanks, Th- Butch. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Well, that was awesome. I could talk to Butch for hours and hours and hours. There's so many great records he's produced. I appreciate you tuning in. If you like the show, please make sure you tell a few friends about the show. Follow us on all sorts of social media at Lip Service Pod, at Scott Lips. The show is free. It's available on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your show every two weeks or so. Theme music by Robbie Hoffman. I appreciate you tuning in, and we'll see you soon.